Perseverance perseveres with Rover Project Scientist Ken Farley. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Perseverance, the Mars 2020 rover, has entered an exciting new phase as it explores an ancient river delta on the Red Planet. If we're going to find evidence of past life, this could be the perfect place to look. That's according to the leader of the mission's science effort. I'll explore this and other topics with Ken. Bruce Betts reminds us that a total lunar eclipse arrives soon for many of us on planet Earth. He'll have the details when we reach this week's What's Up. You'll also get the chance to win a great new book about all eclipses. That includes solar eclipse viewing glasses, two pairs. I'm about to start an interesting couple of weeks. First up will be my return to the Humans to Mars Summit from Explore Mars. Then there's my upcoming return to London. We're now taking reservations to join us for Planetary Radio Live on the evening of Monday, May 23rd. I'll be at Imperial College London with Amanda Lee Falkenberg, composer of the Moons Symphony. On stage with Amanda and me will be artist and ISS astronaut Nicole Stott, Cassini Project Scientist Linda Spilker, you know her, planetary scientist, volcanologist, and author Ashley Davies, and Imperial Professor Mark Sefton, a member of the Europa Clipper science team. You'll find a link on this week's show page at planetary.org radio, but you can also go directly to Eventbrite. Plug in London as the location and search for Planetary Radio Live. We'll pop right up. I hope to see you for this first PlanRad Live since the pandemic began. We'll talk about the glorious intersection of art and science represented so well by the Moon Symphony. I can hardly wait. Did you catch last week's visit to the Jet Propulsion Lab and the Psyche spacecraft? This probe that will head for the metal asteroid of the same name has now arrived at the Kennedy Space Center for its launch in August. You can learn more when you read the May 6 edition of The Downlink, our free weekly newsletter. You'll also read about China's plans for its own asteroid deflection test, much like NASA's DART mission. I'm okay with another space power taking planetary defense seriously. And up at the top of the downlink is the spectacular image of the parachute and back shell that helped get Perseverance safely down to the surface of Mars. Ken Farley and I will talk about this snapshot grabbed by Ingenuity, the Mars helicopter. You'll always find the downlink at planetary.org slash, what else, downlink. Ken Farley is the W.M. Keck Foundation Professor of Geochemistry at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, California. He directs the Noble Gas Lab at Caltech, where they use a lot of very cool equipment to investigate geochemistry and what the lab calls Martian geochronology, figuring out the age and history of red planet rocks and soil. There's just one problem. They don't have any Martian rocks or soil to test directly. And that, of course, is why Ken is one of the many Earthbound scientists who would give their right arm for even a few grams of Mars. It's that quest that keeps Ken at the nearby Jet Propulsion Lab and away from his own lab more than he'd probably like. 
As project scientist for Perseverance, he leads the worldwide science team and works with the engineers. They get the rover to the most promising sites in Jezero Crater, where it collects samples of the material that will someday return to labs like, well, his own. It's a big job, which is one reason I was so grateful for the chance to talk a few days ago. Ken Farley, welcome to Planetary Radio. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Let's start with the health of the rover. How's it holding up? Very well. We have no serious issues with the rover itself, and the science instruments are performing very, very well. Thank goodness. Uh, That is the best possible news, of course. Other than maybe the great science that you're doing, I read that what you call campaign number two began uh, on April 18th, the 415th Sol, or Martian day since you landed, and you're calling this new campaign the Delta Front. Tell us about it. We completed the first about year on Mars exploring the crater floor, and Then we began a long drive to get us to the main target that brought us to Jezero Crater, which was the Delta, the geologic feature that tells us there was once a lake in this crater. We've now arrived at that feature and are starting to explore the sedimentary rocks that were once uh, deposited in, in the lake or in rivers that were filling the lake. Absolutely fantastic. Well, how many samples have been collected to date? We've collected four samples four different rocks, and we've taken pairs of each one of those. So we filled eight sample tubes with rocks. Is there greater excitement about this new region because of the characteristics uh, that it has, this delta? Definitely. As I said, this this delta, uh, it was produced about three and a half billion years ago when Mars was very different to today, in in a period when there was flowing liquid water on the surface. And because one of the central goals of the Mars 2020 mission is to look for the possibility of ancient life on Mars in this very distant time period, this is a very good place to look. Uh, A lake is, of course, a very habitable place. The rocks that we found on the crater floor turned out to all be igneous rocks. They are not uh, not the kind of place where you go to look for life. Hmm. Uh, But uh, rocks that were deposited in a lake, very habitable. How long do you expect this com- campaign will last, and how much Martian territory do you think you'll, you'll cover in that time? This campaign will be very different from what we've been doing, which involved a fair bit of driving across long distances. Instead, here, uh, we will spend about the next maybe six or eight months in a quite restricted area. And that's because the, the Delta has a, has a very steep, uh, almost a cliff at the base, which we call the Delta Front. And that, that's wonderful for exploration because the layers of the sedimentary rocks are exposed in this cliff. So we will spend uh, this campaign exploring the layers uh, that are uh, outcropping in the Delta Front. Does this mean that it's, it's a little bit more difficult for the rover to get around? I mean, what was involved in, in laying out your, your path through this uh, part of the Delta? Yeah, there were some interesting challenges that were new to us. In this area, the geologic targets uh, are are between sand ripples. It makes it a challenge for us to get to exactly where we want to go. Hmm. The ripples are relatively small, and so far so good we are able to navigate through them. But that's really one of the first things that we do is we lay out the route that the rover can, can go uh, and decide where the best science can be done. Uh, fortunately, the, this forms a cliff in most places along the Delta Front. In the area we are right now, 
it's almost like a valley cuts down through it. And so we can drive up a, a relatively shallow grade, uh, allowing the rover to have access. Where is the rover right now? I mean, I know you give names to uh, all the different uh, areas you drive through and the features that surround the rover. We are in the middle of what we call the Cannery Passage Loop, just at the base of the Delta. So we are now taking images of the Delta front. It's a very interesting way that we assign names. Um, We have decided beforehand, before we even landed, that specific areas on the crater floor, we would use target names that are that are taken from names that occur in national parks and preserves around hmm. the world. And the area that we're in right now from which Cannery Passage was drawn is from the Katmai National Park. So Katmai is in Alaska. And I don't know what Cannery Passage is, but it, it must be a, uh, a geographic feature in uh, coastal Alaska. And I bet it looks somewhat different from where uh, Perseverance is right now. Are, are you seeing, yeah. <laughs> are you and the other members of the science team, is there a lot of, there, is there a lot of exciting stuff that you're, you're driving through? Yeah, the, the, the rocks of the Delta Front, they have lots and lots of fascinating details. The layers are exposed so beautifully um, that we've just been acquiring an enormous number of images so far to figure out what the story is that the that the delta will tell us about how this lake filled it, it might have expanded it might have contracted it might have had rivers flowing into it at one point so far we're just trying to figure out what the images are telling us and then in the in the coming days and weeks we'll start using our instruments uh, that we need the rover to be up close w- with the rock to start seeing what the rocks will tell us and uh, i expect that we will acquire samples quite soon Let's talk about that. You've been very judicious about where and when to collect samples. Can you say something about what is the process for for deciding to use one of those precious uh, tubes? We started really going back years. Uh, As soon as we had selected the landing site, we started thinking about what, what is the proper diversity of rocks, the number of rocks, different kinds of rocks that we would want to collect in this area. We called that the notional cache. And now that we're on the surface, we are using that as a guide to figure out where we should be sampling and to some extent also where we're driving. The challenge is that it's easy to say in the abstract, yes, I want to collect a rock that was once a mud at the bottom of the lake. That sounds great. You got a rock in front of you. Is that a mud that was once on the bottom of the lake? And so this is why we have to use our, our instruments on the rover to actually look closely at these rocks and figure out if, if they fit the bill. About those instruments, you've got seven of them, uh, all told. Uh, one of them, uh, that great demonstration of how we might make oxygen for people and rockets someday on Mars, Moxie. But I, I, it's obvious that they, the science that is coming from those, while they're helping you to select sample sites, there is a great deal of science being done that's been already has been delivered back to Earth in the form of data. Uh, can you say something about uh, what we're learning? The most surprising thing we've learned is that the rocks on the floor of the crater, so essentially downhill from the delta, we had expected, at least most of us had expected, that those rocks would be rocks that were deposited in the lake, and they're not. They're, they are igneous rocks. That took us quite a while to 
determine and then to really get our heads around, but what does this mean? It's quite puzzling. I have to say we still haven't quite figured out how all of that works. Undoubtedly, there were sedimentary rocks present where we, where we, for example, where we landed that have eroded away. And this is one of the most interesting stories that, that when, when, you, when you try to understand the way Mars works, you have to, have to recognize that we are looking at billions of years of geologic history such that you know that lake was present three and a half billion years ago and those rocks would have been deposited then, but they've had an enormous amount of time to erode away. It's very unearth-like. It seems also that there, we're hearing once again a lesson we hear all the time on this show, and that is that even a planet that we are coming to know, well, we know it so much better now than we did 40, 50, even 20 years ago, Mars is still full of surprises. Yeah, absolutely. And we have very detailed orbital images that led us to believe um, a, a number of things about this landing site. And then when you get on down on the ground... Some of those hypotheses are confirmed and, and others are refuted. And then there are things you just can't possibly have known from, from any data collected before. For example, these rocks on the crater floor, they're igneous, but they have also interacted with water. Maybe groundwater isn't really clear where the, what the source of the water was, uh, but those rocks were sitting in water for some significant amount of time. And that's really interesting from the point of view of, of looking for potentially habitable environments where ancient um, Martian microorganisms might have been able to live. You probably know that we at the Planetary Society have a special connection to uh, MassCam Z and its principal investigator, Jim Bell. Are you as blown away by its performances as we are? Uh, yeah, the, the images that, uh, that ZCam is producing are really spectacular. <laughs> and I would say every month or so, I send an email to Jim and say, fantastic mosaic that uh, you all just uh, brought down. The ZCAM images, they're, they're science tools, obviously. We use them all the time to do science. Uh, but they're also, they're literally the first thing I look at when we, when we start getting data down at the beginning of a, of a day. First thing I look at because they just make me feel like I'm there. And, and that's, for me, that's the excitement of it. Like, wow, we are, we are here. You know, the human presence is, is up there on Mars. And how. I, I was at Arizona State University not too long ago and, and uh, visiting with Jim and some other folks, but I also got to see the meeting that, that his group there leads, uh, I guess, every day or almost every day, deciding what to do with uh, those, those mighty cameras uh, on top of the mast. Uh, and it, it just it, it said a lot to me about how this mission— is spread not just across uh, the United States among scientists here, but the international nature of this mission as well, and, and the hundreds, if not thousands, of people who are contributing to it. It's a huge team, and uh, it, it's a, a fascinating um, human endeavor in the, in the sense that many of us have never met each other. Uh, that would be different uh, if it were not for the pandemic, but most of the operations among the, among the science team, they're done remotely, and I have not met uh, the, the lion's share of these team members. It's, it's kind of weird that you recognize people's voices better than you recognize their face. <laughs> I also have to mention those microphones that are telling us what Mars sounds like for the very first time, something that has been near and dear to the Planetary Society for decades, as you probably know. Is that sound, is it uh, enabling uh, real science uh, as the rover rolls across the planet? 
yes, it, it's doing a few things that are, I think, partly they're just interesting to hear the, the sounds of the rover crunching across the ground. Oh yeah. Um, that, that is, it, it, uh, that's another aspect of, yeah, it's like you're being there. You know, you can, you can hear those sounds and you can hear the, the sound of the wind. It's kind of a lonesome uh, sound to me, mm. but there's also really interesting information content that's coming out of that, that, that uh, I at least had not, not been anticipating. Uh, for example, there have been studies uh, done to determine the speed of sound in, in the Martian environment using Ingenuity, the helicopter, as a sound source. So that's pretty interesting. And the other thing which is, is really fascinating is you can get high-frequency information on the wind from the microphone. It's at, at uh, frequencies that are too high to be uh, measured with the, with the wind sensors on the, on the weather instrument called META. So it's, it's very interesting to see all that play out. I am very glad that you mentioned uh, Ingenuity, that, that cute little whirly bird that Perseverance carried to the Red Planet, and that, you know, the rover still supports, still enables it to communicate with us. I'm especially thinking of those images that were released yesterday, as you and I speak, of uh, the back shell and the parachute that helped get you down to uh, to the surface. I wrote to your colleague, JPL Chief Engineer Rob Manning, about them yesterday. He said to say hi, and he added, Yes, it's very cool and weird to see our once pristine white back shell, now toasted, squished, and dusty, sitting on another planet awaiting future archaeologists. I mean, were you were you <laughs> were you surprised to see Ingenuity become not just a a little test of technology, but a real contributor to your overall mission. Yes, this was completely unexpected. And just to remind everybody that the Ingenuity was a technology demonstration. It was meant to do uh, five or six flights and declare victory. It did that. And then we realized, hey, but there, this, this uh, helicopter is showing no indication of uh, not being able to survive for the long term. And so now, essentially a year later, we continue to have Ingenuity with us. There's one more tribute just to the engineering of the rover that that I have to make, and it's also something we've talked about in the past. I've had people describe Perseverance to me as a robot with another robot inside it, and I'm I'm talking about that absolutely amazing uh, mechanical system inside for handling your samples. And of course, it takes up a lot of the room that you know, on Curiosity is filled up with uh, robotic laboratories. But I, I just, I mean, do you, <laughs> you've been with this for so long now, I wonder, do you still sometimes just marvel at what this machine is capable of doing? Yeah, absolutely. And and I have to say, as I, as, as I live through the development phase, it's one thing to see it on paper or hear the engineers talk about it. And then I saw the first video taken in the test bed, you know, several years ago, and I thought, Wow, what have we done? This thing is so complicated, and it must work. It is mission critical. Our, our central objective of collecting samples demands that this thing work. We've had some interesting challenges. We got some, you know, we got some pebbles jammed in the uh, in the mechanism uh, about uh, three four months ago. We got them out. Hopefully, we will continue to be successful in keeping it going. Ken, you have a lot of us out here. Certainly, everybody listening to this show who will be following along as uh, you, your team, and that rover continue to explore and pick up bits of Mars for later return to Earth. Cannot wait to get those uh, samples back into big labs down here on uh, on our home planet. 
best of continued success as, uh, as the exploration continues. We'll be following. Yeah, thank you very much, and thanks for having me on. Perseverance Rover Project Scientist Ken Farley. My complete conversation with Ken is at planetary.org slash radio and all the usual places to find podcasts. Back with Bruce in a minute here on Planetary Radio. Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family, really any creative activity that's space-related, we invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connect at planetary.org. That's connect at planetary.org. Thanks! There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He is with us yet again. And and we've got the lunar eclipse, total lunar eclipse. Turns out, once in a while, that crazy moon passes through the Earth's shadow. And it's going right through the middle of the Earth's shadow this time, so it'll be a nice long period of totality. Uh, that'll be the night of May 15th or 16th. It is uh, visible from North America, yay, and portions of Western Europe and Western Africa, beginning at 2.27 UTC on May 16th. That's uh, Pacific time, 7.27 p.m. on May 15th. Does the moon ever say, I'm being followed by an Earth shadow? Earth shadow, Earth shadow. Probably not. Thinking. <laughs> I have not personally heard it say that. All right, uh, let us, uh, by the way, uh, totality starts at 329 UTC on the 16th, 829 p.m. on the 15th for Pacific time, and totality lasts about an hour and a half and should get nice and dark as it goes through the middle of the Earth's shadow, being followed by an Earth's shadow. Uh, if you're up in the pre-dawn, check out super bright Venus, low in the east, and above it, bright Jupiter, and above that, reddish Mars and yellowish Saturn. This Week in Space History, 1973, Skylab was launched, starting the series of Skylab first U.S. space station missions. On to random space fact. Can't place that. I don't know what Cat Stevens' song that was, but go ahead. Oh, my God. The Wright Flyer. You may have heard of it. Uh, first powered flight, 1903. Well, I don't know where they're getting the, all the pieces from it, but pieces have flown and on various missions. And it's intriguing, the missions that pieces of the Wright Flyer have flown on. Neil Armstrong took some on Apollo 11 to the surface of the moon and back. And I didn't realize this one, that in 1986, it was on the uh, unfortunate Challenger that blew up. They, had, wow. uh, they were taking it to space. What's more amazing is they recovered it. They recovered the wood and fabric and a note from Orville Wright, and those are on display at a North Carolina Museum of History. Oh, my. That just floors me. In happier, happier, happier news, 
A small piece of the wing fabric is attached to a cable underneath the solar panel of the helicopter, Ingenuity, flying around on Mars. First powered flight on Mars is flying part of the first powered flight on Earth. I didn't know that either. How cool. I hope they, listen, I hope they can find little bits and pieces that they can take along with them right up until the point we reach Proxima Centauri. Uh, so that that's fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you, what was the last spacecraft to do a Venus flyby? Orbiters don't count. How do we do, Matt? Oh, man. Did you throw people off here? And, and I think it's just because so many references online probably haven't been updated. We got Beppe Colombo from a lot of people. Beppe Colombo, that uh, ESA probe, headed to Mercury. It passed by Venus last in August of 2021, apparently. But that's not the most recent, was it? No, it wasn't. It was the Matt Kaplan. No, what did we find <laughs> out, Matt? You're close. You're close. Here's the answer from Dave Fairchild, our poet laureate in Kansas. If you are a solar craft, then Venus is your gravity, helping you improve the way you reach the sun more agilely. Parker is a solar probe, and that's how NASA gets it done, passing by our neighbor in October 2021. Dun, dun, dun. Hey, sorry, everybody. There were a huge number of you who came up with Pepe Colombo, but I think even more who got it right with Parker Solar Probe. And one of those was Keith Landa. Keith, congratulations. You were chosen by random.org. Keith in Connecticut, we are going to send you a copy of The End of Astronauts, Why Robots Are the Future of Exploration. By Don Goldsmith and Martin Rees, the UK's Astronomer Royal, who, of course, we uh, talked to just a couple of weeks ago on the show. The book is from Belknap Press, Press, which is an imprint of the Harvard University Press. <laughs> we can move on. I like this one. Why is there a depiction, a depiction of a snake on the Perseverance rover? Huh. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Enter the contest, and guess what? You have extra time because I'm going to be out of town first at that Humans to Mars Summit that I mes uh, mentioned up front, and then in London, as I also mentioned up front. So uh, I've got that Planetary Radio Live show, so that if you're going to be in the, in the area of London... Don't I'm, abandon me! I know. I'm sorry. I'll be back, I promise. May 23rd is that show in London at Imperial College London where we'll celebrate the moon symphony and uh, you know we have that link uh, because uh, reservations are necessary we've got the link on this week's show page of planetary.org slash radio love to see you but uh, because of that we're going to delay the contest deadline to may 25 and i know a lot of you don't get to hear the show in the first week after we publish it so you got a shot this time that's may 25 wednesday at 8 a.m Pacific time. And if you get it in correctly and are chosen by random.org, we have a copy of a brand new book from our friend Jeff Bennett, Jeffrey Bennett of uh, Big Kid Science. He has a beautiful new hardcover book that includes solar glasses because the book is called Totality, an Eclipse Guide in Rhyme and Science. So it's a great book. And this is a signed copy from Jeff Bennett. So, uh, that can be yours. Uh, two pairs of eclipse glasses, actually. What? Nice. Yeah. 
All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about if Matt had a British accent, what type of British accent would he have? In what region? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. No, thank you, and good night. And if I ever lose my mouth. Stop with the cat Stevens. <laughs> Don't you have like a dog Stevens at least? That irritated person is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts, who joins <laughs> us every week here on What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its persevering members, Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta. Associate producers Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astro.